Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma. Before you begin listening to this episode of Model Mentality with Teddy Quinlivan, I want to touch base on why we are releasing this and future episodes in light of our current environment. I've been working with my co-host Bridget Malcolm since July 2019 on this podcast focused on mental health in the fashion industry, which was scheduled to launch in March 2020. However, once the COVID-19 pandemic struck, we decided to pause But through the last four months, there has been a call to action for mental health in a way that I have not witnessed to date, which has made us rethink our timeline. Although we are not going to release the entire season right now, we've hand-selected episodes that we feel are important to share, all of which were recorded pre-COVID or in the initial period when the pandemic set in. Because June 2020 is LGBTQ Pride Month, and this is the 50th year of Pride traditions, and because more recently, on Monday, June 15, 2020, the Supreme Court in the United States ruled that the 1964 civil rights law protects gay and transgender workers in the workforce, we feel it's important and timely to launch our curation of Model Mentality episodes with Teddy's episode this month. We hope that you enjoy this podcast. Stay safe, healthy, and be mindful during these challenging times. Please note that the contents of Model Mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about model mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Today's guest is Teddy Quinlivan. Teddy was discovered to model in 2015 by the creative director of Louis Vuitton. She is a regular on the runway for brands like Versace, Marc Jacobs and Dior, and has been on the covers of Louis Ficiel and ID magazine. In 2017, Teddy came out as transgender, and today she is the first ever transgender model to be the face of Chanel Beauty. In this episode, we discuss her story as it relates to her gender identity from childhood to present, including the bullying she experienced and the intense psychological process she experienced leading up to her public disclosure within the fashion industry. Teddy, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. We're really happy to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to speak with both of you. I'm so excited. I think this is a very important conversation to be having about mental health as it pertains to um, people working in the fashion industry. So I'm very, very glad to participate. Very happy to have you. So first off, how did you get into modeling? At my boarding school that I was a day student at, um, 
This boy came and visited my school who was a friend of my friend who was um, a student at the school from Los Angeles. So everybody was panicking because this really hot boy was on campus. Um, And he came and sat at my table because I was friends with the girl that he was friends with. Months and months later, um, I ended up getting a... uh, a, a Facebook DM from him. And I was so happy because I was like, oh my God, he's going to ask me out. Like I thought, like I, I thought the flirtation was going to pick up again. And then um, it turns out that he wasn't flirting with me at all, but he was in fact a male model and he was scouting for his agency in Los Angeles at the time. One thing led to another, and um, I ended up signing with a local agency in Boston, Maggie Inc. And um, I uh, deferred from college for a year and moved to Paris. I was about to quit modeling when all of a sudden I decided I'm going to give this modeling thing one last try before I quit and go back to school. So I had one meeting with one agency, and... um, I, I took the meeting and they, they wanted me to, they wanted to represent me. And, um, they sent a couple photos out to a couple different casting directors, just some Polaroids and some test images that I took. And, um, within like 20 minutes, I was offered three different, um, exclusives for three different, very, very big brands. And like the one I ended up going with was uh, Louis Vuitton because the designer was Nicolas Gasquier and he was somebody who I always admired. And so um, I was super lucky because my first kind of big break as a model was to be a worldwide exclusive for um, Louis Vuitton, which was like... That's like up there without a doubt. It's like the perfect entree into the fashion world. That's really cool. It's funny how it like doesn't work. And then when it does, it's suddenly like, this is really intense. How was your coming out received by the industry? Um, it was received, um, very positively. And I think the reason why it was received very positively was first of all, it's an industry of LGBTQ individuals. I think it was also, a moment where it was starting to become very trendy. I I cha- I wanted to challenge the industry when I came out too, because I had been walking all of these shows and working for all these brands as a passable cisgender girl. And I did it in the middle of fashion week intentionally because I wanted to put the pressure on the casting directors and on these brands to rehire me despite the fact that I was transgender and, um, you know, it would be a very clear distinction of the previous season. I worked for these brands and then this season I'm out publicly as transgender. And these are the brands that did not work with me. I did want to like shine a light on, um, the importance of representation. And I wanted to make, I wanted to put the pressure on these people to make, uh, gender inclusivity, um, a priority, especially because consumers of fashion aren't just rich, mid-European, Eastern European, beautiful, skinny white women. Consumers of fashion are transgender. They are black. They're overweight. They're underweight. They're, there's just, I mean, everybody wears clothes. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter what's in between your legs. It doesn't matter what your brain chemistry is or how shiny your hair is or how many inches wide your thighs are. Everybody wears clothes. And this in fashion is something that 
touches every type of person. And I just found it so kind of like bizarre that um, fashion was being marketed in this very limiting way. You know, so I was received positively. And I think like a part of why I was received positively for it was because of it, it took about a year of of strategizing before I did come out. So I came to my agency and I said, I'm ready to come out. And they helped um, hook me up with the right team of people to collaborate on how we should do it and, um, you know, and w- what that would entail. And so I was very lucky um, in that respect. Thank you so much, Teddy. Um, that was awesome. Over to Ali to go deeper in the mental health. All right. So I'm going to dive right in and I want to start. Uh, can you tell our listeners some of the reasons why you started to speak publicly about being transgender back in 2017? When I um, came out publicly as transgender in the fall of 2017, it was something that um, I kind of never expected I would have to do. Um Growing up transgender was this extremely taboo um, subject, and uh, oftentimes transgender people were uh, demeaned in a way as if they were some kind of sexual deviant or um, deeply mentally ill or just plainly a joke. So for me, being transgender growing up, I kind of had this impression that this was a thing that I was going to have to conceal my entire life in order to have a, you know, relatively good quality of life and just to survive in the world. So um, I started modeling when I was um, 17 years old, which was also unexpected being this transgender kid growing up in, um, a small town in Massachusetts. It was just something super unexpected for me, but, um, it was something that I, it was an opportunity. I felt I couldn't refuse because it was, you know, there was nothing more exciting or fun than traveling the world and modeling. And if there was any way I could live out this tiny dream in the back of my mind. I was like, why not just take this chance and um, run with it? And I was going to study fashion design anyway. So I had this really strong affinity towards fashion in the first place. So for me, um, it was, I, I kind of came to this conclusion that the only way I was going to find success as a model, um, was to conceal the transgender aspect of my identity, which I felt pretty comfortable doing because I was just so eager to live my life as a quote unquote normal girl. Um, I didn't want to be perceived by the public as, um, transgender because of all of the social implications of that. Um, and so I started modeling and I started modeling in the transgender community, what we call stealth and stealth means that you are, um, passable enough as a woman or as a man where people don't question, um, your birth gender. So when I would go into meetings and I'd say, hi, I'm Teddy Quinlivan. I'm a girl, blah, blah, blah. Nobody questioned it. Um, so with my first mother agency, when I went in for that meeting, my mother agent had no idea. It was never discussed. It was never something um, we ever spoke about. When I signed with my agency in Paris, it was nothing that we ever discussed. It was not, never spoken. Um, and I really enjoyed it and liked it that way because I felt like um, 
I was really experiencing life the way I'd always dreamt of experiencing it, which was living fully as female. Fast forward to 2016, and it's Obama's last year in office and Donald Trump's first. And obviously, um, as a member of the LGBTQ community, whether you're living in stealth or if you're in the closet um, or not, the um, political implications of Trump's policies were going to affect everybody in our community. But particular, particularly transgender people were being targeted. Um, and we, you know, saw very quickly things like transgender um, protections and rights that um, Obama's administration had put into place for students and for soldiers and um, for just workers were being stripped away left and right. And I felt like I had a very, I felt like I had a responsibility to my community, um, but also to myself as just a member of that community to stand up and fight. Um, for what I believed was right. And I felt like this characteriza this characterization of transgender people was um, just so wrong and so different than my experience. And I just saw that there was this broad under misunderstanding of um, what it means to be transgender. And I felt like I was in a position of influence and power and um, that I never kind of expected myself to be in. And um, I felt like it was just the right moment to come out and say to the world that I was transgender. So and during New York Fashion Week in 2017, um, the morning of Marc Jacobs, I came out publicly in a CNN article that I'd been working on with um, my agency at the time and um, also um, two amazing publicists. And um, I really wanted to orchestrate it in a way that was tasteful, that was becoming of um, both my, um, my brand as a model, but also um, I wanted it to just be this thing that everybody could look at and everybody could read that article and feel like they had, uh, that they could be pleasantly surprised to see a transgender person who was out in the world, um, being successful, um, in their profession in a, in maybe a way that people wouldn't expect a transgender person to be successful in, um, that line of work. Um, especially because I think so much of the reason why there are so many of these social implications for transgender people is, comes down to our appearance. Much of the time, I think it's very perplexing for people to see a masculine figure wearing feminine clothing, um, or, and vice versa. So, um, I just wanted to really kind of diminish that stereotype of, um, you know, what the transgender person was, um, and challenge that in, um, a positive way. But also I felt like it, I needed, I, I felt like Trump's presidency and Trump's election was a call out to action for me personally. Um, and it also was just the right time in my career to come forward and say something. I just felt, 
I felt like I was ready and I felt like it was a moment where I had um, the strength, the internal strength to make this transition into being an openly trans public figure and not just a model. And were you at all struggling leading up to the point where you decided to disclose in terms of your decision or was there any fear that you had before before the disclosure? Absolutely. I had, I had an enormous amount of fear. It, it's just, I, I was just in this really remarkable, remarkable position where I didn't really need plastic surgery or I didn't need to go undergo these really extensive procedures that a lot of um, transgender individuals have to go through to pass. I was just like very genetically lucky. Um, and I felt I felt extremely grateful for that privilege um, because I felt like that was what was going to guarantee me my safety. Um, And in terms of being able to make it through the world um, and live a normal life. So I was really kind of terrified that maybe not only was I going to lose modeling opportunities because people were uncomfortable with the idea of hiring an openly transgender model, I also felt um, kind of discouraged by this idea that I would be giving up a big piece of my privacy, especially as it pertains to like my genitals, which like whose business is that really? You know what I mean? It's so it was just kind of like I'm being judged. I'm gonna, I was like, okay, I'm gonna be judged for my entire life for something I never chose um, and something that nobody's ever really even gonna see. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm not walking around naked. So it's like, why, why does it even matter to these people? And I also thought about the social implication, the, the implications of dating and how it was going to affect my, my love life. Cause I had had all of these incredible boyfriends and these incredible relationships with men who never in a million years thought that they would ever date a transgender girl, but had this sense of comfort knowing that, um, I wasn't publicly out. So that they, my partners also felt protected by my um, anonymity, um, and as far as uh, disclosing my trans identity went. So yeah, it was really, it was really scary. I knew it would rock my world, and I knew it would be this scary thing. But I've never been one to shy away from a risk. So I've always, I, I just kind of was like, okay, yeah, this is a very, very terrifying. Um, but if I can just make it that much easier for the next transgender person or the next transgender person living in stealth to share their identity, um, then this could be a really beautiful opportunity to make the world for our community a better place um, and to spread understanding and awareness and visibility for my community. So that's, you know, it was terrifying, but I felt like the the pros outweighed the cons. And also it was like, an, it was a big experiment. Like nothing like this had ever really been done before. Um, in terms of like fashion models, there had been, there have been transgender fashion models in the past who weren't publicly out as transgender, but then had been outed. Um, Tula, who was a Playboy Playmate comes to mind. She was outed by somebody in a tabloid and she was like a Bond girl and she was, she had worked for Playboy and all these things. And so um, I kind of had some, there there had been instances of transgender women being outed before and it ha- having 
and that having damaged their careers in the past. So, I mean, I was really scared, but I also just felt like, I felt like we were on the brink of a social revolution in terms of LGBTQ acceptance. And I felt like, um, especially in mainstream media, there was this broad acceptance of um, gay people and um, bisexual people. And I felt that um, why couldn't trans be the next thing that uh, became broadly accepted? And there were people at the time like, Laverne Cox and Trace Lissette and um there were there were out transgender actresses who were really doing remarkable things and so I just thought to myself why not me in my profession um take that risk and so yeah it was scary but like you got to do what you got to do to push the world forward absolutely and very brave yeah (laughs) so you said something to me uh when we first spoke and that was to a cisgender person, a trans orientation does not make sense. And we want to make sure that by the end of this podcast, our listeners have a better sense of what it means to be trans through hearing your story and maybe some other definitions and science behind it. And so just really quickly, you know, for those listening to the podcast, it, you may not be familiar with the term cisgender or transgender for that matter. And here's a definition for cisgender. Cisgender is a person who identifies with the sex they were assigned at birth. So for example, I'm cisgender by conventions of anatomy and genetics. I was assigned female and my identity has always been that I felt female. And maybe just for listeners to hear, can you describe what transgender is? So transgender, um, in the uh, conventional sense of the term, literally means to transition genders. Um, Transgender is kind of this um, more broader term for um, gender identity disorder. Which is an old term, and we'll talk about that. It's now moved out of the, the, the world of psychiatry, which is good. But yeah, go ahead. So transgender essentially means the transition from one gender to the other, um, in the conventional sense. Um, and so I was assigned male at birth, but really I was, my sex is male. So, um, I have male chromosomes and I have male, I was born with male genitalia, but my brain, um, my my psychological identity doesn't match my physicality, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there's an incongruence. Yes, exactly. So um, I have all of the physical attributes of a male, but my brain has no idea or concept of what it's like to be male. I I don't I, other than li- my lived experience being raised as a boy, I don't have in in my opinion a male brain. And actually, could we get into that a little bit? I'd love to be more granular on that. And obviously, everyone's story is different. This is your story, but I think there are things that we can you know t- takeaways we can take home from this. I want to start by going back to your early childhood. You were assigned male at birth based on anatomy genetics convention. However, early on, you knew that you were a girl. Tell us your earliest memories of your experience of gender and what you remember, how you knew you were a girl. 
So growing up, my experience of gender was always, um, for me, very clear cut. I always felt an affinity towards femininity. It was always something that um, I felt in sync with. Um, I didn't I, I didn't identify with anything really masculine other than when it was kind of forced upon me because, you know, when you're being raised as a boy, um, especially by conservative traditional parents, they, you know, are trying to raise a man. So they push you in the direction of um, more masculine activities like playing action sports and... Um, playing with trucks and playing with action figures when all I wanted to do was wear dresses, um, play dress up with my girlfriends, um, and just really exist in this world of femininity. And I felt like I had a place in that world of femininity. And when you're a young child, you just don't know. You just, I just didn't know. Like, I, I didn't know the difference between gender. I didn't know the difference between sex as a really young kid. I just thought that, okay, they're calling me a boy, but maybe there are millions of other boys who feel the exact same way I do. I didn't know as a, um, as like a five-year-old or a six-year-old or, you know, even a four-year-old that women had vaginas and men had penises. I thought kind of like everybody had the same anatomy. I just wasn't, um, I just, I just wasn't exposed to, um, really the, the true differences between genders, um, until, and, and sex until later in my life. So I kind of like was um, very naive to it when I was younger, but I was just, you know, when you're a kid, you're being guided along by the people who are raising you. Um, so I felt like, okay, well, I, I didn't understand why I was, why my, you know, my princess dresses were being taken away from me or why I wasn't allowed to, why I wasn't allowed to hang out with girls or why I couldn't buy a Barbie. Those things didn't make any sense to me in the moment. Um, so Teddy, when did you start to notice the difference between the gender you were assigned at birth versus how you were feeling about your gender? I started to notice a difference and really I started to pay attention. Um, I would say probably around the age of like seven or eight, um, when I started to enter school, um, I remember, especially elementary school, I remember going into elementary school and um, automatically identifying with all the feminine things that I had always loved, but in a setting that was surrounded by um, teachers and by other students, and I was constantly being bullied and being... Um, kind of picked apart by not just my peers in class, but also by some of the educational professionals. And that only continued to get worse and worse. And then on top of that, too, I had these very conservative parents. I had um, a, a father who was clearly very uncomfortable with the idea that um, I was a, I was a, 
interested in anything feminine. And I had a mother that um, I think was also very confused and perplexed by that. The bullying that you experienced, was that as a result of you being male and expressing femininity? Or was it about something else? It was definitely about um, being male and expressing femininity. Um, And so that when... I don't know. It, it's 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 so it's so hard to say, but I I wasn't like that weird of a kid. I didn't have like very strange interests. Yes, I was creative. Yes, I was attracted to, you know, femininity, but I didn't see why that was a bad thing until um I started getting bullied at school and it became very difficult for me to have friends and that sort of thing. And so um I think it just became pretty self-evident that the way I felt on the inside um, had to be suppressed in order to just make it through um, because I, I there was only so much of it I could suppress in the first place. Like some of it just came so naturally to me, just the way I spoke, the way I walked, the way my gesturing. I think that sometimes... Um, those kind of feminine traits or some traits of gender are just kind of ingrained in the way that we represent ourselves subconsciously. And I was subconsciously, even though I was trying to just fit in, I couldn't fit in because I couldn't hide every aspect of um, my femininity and the bullying became so consistent that at a point I was just kind of, I, I even at a very young age, I was just kind of like, okay, well, um, I'm going to get bullied. I, I kind of figured I would get bullied no matter what. Um, so it just never, it never crossed my mind that, to like full, I would just, I just felt like I could appease my parents anyways. Like I could be like the person that I wanted to be in private and then I could like, go to school and like play soccer and like um play video games with boys and so I kind of like had to find a space for myself within the masculine world for me to like fit and coexist with those people but um I found that as I got older things got exceedingly difficult like I started to feel extremely uncomfortable to use the men's restroom for example at school um I just felt like I didn't belong in that space. Um, and I felt extremely uncomfortable being there. Um, I felt really uncomfortable um, in gym class going into the locker rooms and changing and just feeling this extremely strong sense of I shouldn't be here. This isn't where I belong. Um, and not just because I was getting bullied because it's not like you know, when sometimes when you're the the weird kid in school, you're not it's not like everybody's saying something to you all the time. Sometimes people are just ignoring you um, flat out. So even in the moments of quiet where I wasn't getting bullied, which were very few and far to far between, I still felt these like this existential feeling of this is not where I'm supposed to be right now. I feel extremely uncomfortable. Um. And it was kind of around middle school where I also started to discover, like, you know, my sexuality. And so um, I think a lot of times in the conversation of gender, um, 
being transgender, people often conflate sexuality with gender. And um, I always like to say that sexuality is who you go to bed with and gender is who you go to bed as. That's really well said. I like that. So um, I, you know, as a kind of a teenager, being in these being in gym class and being in these boys bathrooms and also starting to like kind of uncover my sexuality and, but also not identifying. I was always being bullied for being a gay kid, but I never, I never got that because in my head I was like, well, I, I'm attracted to men, but I'm not a boy. And I just like always knew I wasn't a boy. It just wasn't even a question for me. It was just a question of when are these other people going to recognize that. Um, And I thought it was so self-evident. And I also felt like because of the energy I was giving off into the world, like because of the feminine energy I was giving off into the world, I felt a strong sense that a lot of the bullying and retaliation I got, particularly from male classmates, was um, I could see that there was this confusion of like, they were attracted to me, but they, you know, would have to bully me to like prove that they weren't attracted to me, What, which became even more evident that they were kind of obsessed because it's like, you know, you would catch somebody staring at you in class the entire time and then you'd be walking down the hall and they'd call you like a faggot, you know? So it's like, it, it was that, it, that was very perplexing for me as well. So, um, and of course, I, could, I couldn't tell anybody about the way I felt about being attracted to men because I felt like it would instantly be construed as you're, you're gay. And I didn't want to give people that satis- the satisfaction of that answer because, first of all, it was false and it wasn't true to my identity And then on top of that, too, like in middle school, like the worst thing you can be is like a gay kid because like there's no more bullying than you like. That's that was just the go to insult for everybody. Like, that's so gay. You're so gay. Like, you know, just anything to do with insulting your sexuality was like the first thing that kids would jump to. um, to, So I was just kind of like, all right, like, I don't feel gay. I don't think I am gay. I, I know I just it wasn't even a question for me. It was just a question of how am I going to be able in my to facilitate living as a woman? And I, w- I was thinking about this as a young kid and I would just go to bed at night and I would, you know, I came from this religious family. And so I would pray to God. I, w- I thought that maybe God would like answer my prayers and I would wake up with a vagina and I could just call it a day and just go on living the rest of my life. I mean, it was just so, so extremely complicated. And um, so what happened along those lines, you know, when you hit puberty and you started to develop, you know, classic or characteristic male features, how did that affect you? Or was that an added layer of difficulty and complexity? For me, I didn't start to show, um, I didn't really start to show masculine qualities um, physically until like I was about 17, to be honest, um, or until I was about 16. Um, 
because I started to get really tall, which happened at the time I was about 16 years old. I was just like, a, I was just late to puberty, which ended up being kind of lucky for me um, in a lot of ways um, because it enabled me to look feminine for, um, to, to remain looking feminine, um, which, you know, ended up being extremely beneficial to me like later in my life. Um, but I felt... I don't, I, it was, it's, it was hard to say because I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a special case where I never hated the way I looked. Like I never was like, I never looked at my body or most of my body and thought, oh my God, I hate, like, I think a lot of times there, there are many transgender individuals with an experience of this extreme body dysmorphia and they really feel like they are, they don't belong in their body. I didn't, I didn't, um, have enough masculine traits and to the point where I felt like super uncomfortable. Like, did I have the smallest nose? Like, no. Did I have like the most feminine jawline? No, but neither did Kira Knightley and neither did, you know, these Sarah Jessica Parker and these beautiful women that I was seeing on TV who had character and poise. And I was really into fashion at the time. So I was like, you know, going on style.com, which is now Vogue Runway. And, um, looking at these pictures and images of these models. And that's where I started to really find a sense of appreciation for my, you know, the way I looked was I saw these girls on the runway and I was like, they're tall and just as skinny as I am and look just as weird as I do. Um, And they are androgynous and they are being put on this pedestal for the way that they look. So I really didn't feel super uncomfortable with the way I looked physically. But when I came out to my mom when I was 16 years old, um, a big prerogative for her. Um, and at the time I didn't, you know, I just wasn't even expecting my family to be, um, open to the idea of my transition. So I was just expecting that to get shot down and like, I would have to hide it until I was an adult and, um, I could take action into my own hands and start to, you know, transition outside of my family life, whether I went to college or whatever was going to happen at 16 years old. I wasn't really, thinking about that, but I came out to my mom and, um, for her, I think she understood the implications of not appearing, uh, of identifying as a gender that you didn't appear as. So for my mom, it was extremely important, um, to get me on hormone replacement therapy as soon as possible. Um, so I had the best shot of, living a quote unquote normal life as a woman. Um, so even if she didn't understand everything about being transgender, one thing that she knew for sure was that I was transgender. And when I came to her that, and I, and I came out to her, she knew it was real. She didn't question it for a second. Um, she was very, very aware just from the way I'd been, I had been presenting myself and acting from a very, very young age that, um, this was, this was real and this was serious. And I wouldn't be saying this despite after all, all of the bullying I endured, all of the humiliation I endured, she knew that I wouldn't be coming out if there wasn't a level of severity to it and reality. Um, and so 
I think she witnessed it firsthand. And even though she had no idea what being transgender meant, she immediately, and I didn't even know what, I didn't know what transgender, I didn't even know there was a term transgender. I came out at 16 years old. I had never seen a transgender person before in my life other than on like Maury Polvich and Jerry Springer and kind of these like daytime television shows that portrayed transgender women, in particular women, to be um, these creepy, sexual, deviant, um, just, you know, like not the best representations of transgender people. And I looked at that and I didn't see, I was like, that's not me. That's like a, I just, I, I saw the portrayal of transgender women in media and I just felt like that's not who I am. And I wanted to, you know, have the best chance of being normal and not being mocked as possible. And I'm glad that I'm, I, I'm, I'm super grateful that my mom also, you know, understood the severity of the situation and also understood the timing too, because I was, 16 going on 17 at the time and it was kind of imperative that I took those steps to um to transition in that moment because otherwise perhaps I would have a lower voice perhaps I would have um a more more you know facial hair or more masculine qualities that I ended up not um I ended up not getting because of my parents' swiftness and taking action. But also I was at an age where I felt comfortable saying like, this is kind of what it's going to be for the rest of my life. It's not like I was like a 10-year-old making this decision or coming forward. I was 16 years old. I could drive a car. Um, I, I felt like I had enough of awareness of a sense of self. I had enough sense of self to know that this was legitimate. Yeah. And you know what she's talking about? It's you are lucky in the sense that you had this delayed pubertal onset because then she could suppress it with hormones. And I think, and also you're just so fortunate that your mother was supportive. And I think, unfortunately, that's not often the experience of people, you know, in your position. And there's can be a lot of discrimination, lack of family support. And, you know, we hope that this podcast can help to start to address that. Um, but tell us about, you know, I know you started modeling at 17 and you start, also decided to go on hormones around that time. Were they interlinked at all or did one happen before the other? Um, I started going on hormones before um, I started to model because modeling was kind of like this super spontaneous thing that happened to me. But my transition was 16 years in the making, like, you know, so it was kind of it, it was I never thought in a million years I would ever model. It was just like was not on my radar. I had an obsession with fashion, but it just wasn't something I thought I was going to do. Um, and for me, focusing on my transition in that moment was the most important thing that, um, for, that was the most important thing for me to do. So to kind of lay out a timeline, I came out when I was 16 years old and I came out, um, at right out, like in the summer, um, in between school years. So I had already completed my freshman year of high school, um, in a public high school where I was being 
bullied and threatened. My life was threatened on a daily basis. Kids were, you know, driving by and throwing things at me as I walked home from school. Um, Threats of physical violence. A boy, you know, an example of that is a boy um, on Facebook, which was very new at the time, um, wrote in graphic detail about how he was going to murder me and the weapon that he was going to use to do so. And we reported it to the police. And, you know, had this been 2019, I mean, this would have been treated with an enormous amount of severity. But um, the police kind of like wrote it off as this sort of like, well, what can we do about it sort of thing? If you don't want it to have your life threatened, maybe you shouldn't look like that. And that's kind of the response that I was getting throughout my entire young life, kids would threaten to, you know, to hurt me and I would go into school and I would, they would disrupt class to bully me. So I would be constantly in the principal's office at my public high school. And they would say, well, if you don't want to get bullied, dress like a, dress like a boy. Like to them, that was, it was that simple for those educational professionals. Like that's like what the answer was. It was like, if you don't want to have a tough life conform. But Teddy, how did, how did you withstand all of this? The bullying, the threats, the death threats, like how did this affect you and has it lingered? Has it stayed on in any way? Um, yes, definitely. Um, I think that it really hardened me, hardened me as a young person being bullied, um, as much as much as I did, because I wasn't just being bullied by the kids at my school. I was being bullied by adults, like other parents in the neighborhood that I lived in, um, and even my parents um, at times. So I felt unsafe wherever I went, unless I was completely alone, like in the woods. Um, I felt that no matter kind of like where I was and what I was doing, it was going to be, I was going to be ridiculed and I was going to be humiliated. And so I put up these very, very strong, you know, guard, guards and walls to protect myself. And, um, I was, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones because I had enough strength to, um, and endurance to kind of write off these attacks on a constant basis. Um, And it's so easy for me to see how somebody could be led to having suicidal thoughts or taking action on those suicidal thoughts because it, it's so demeaning to be treated the way I was treated. I mean, it's just something I would never wish upon any human being ever. Just the bullying I endured on such a constant basis um, was really, really, really challenging, but it just kind of became a way of life for me. Um, and even to this day, I still have, I'm, I, I, I'm getting much better at it now, um, as an adult in, in, in terms of managing it, but I can get extremely, you know, cause I had to stand up for myself as a young person. I wasn't, I wouldn't allow myself to get walked all over by these kids, especially because I thought the kids who were bullying me were losers in the first place. So it was even, it was like adding insult to injury. I was like, not even like I was being bullied by people who I respected. It was like, I was being bullied by like the worst people in my school. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, these, these, 
horrible kids with this ho- these horrible fashions. And I mean, I just couldn't believe that I was like, I, I was getting so much ridicule, ridicule from these people that I thought like, honestly sucked. So that was, that kind of in a way made it easier for me because I like, they clearly didn't respect me for being who I was. And I was like, I don't respect you for the way you're not only treating me, but whatever. Um, but uh, for the fact that you're ridiculing me despite all of your flaws, but their flaws in high school weren't as bad as mine in, in high school language. So it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like I could say anything back to them and really hurt them. But, you know, I did stand up for myself all the time. So I became like extremely defensive um, as a young person and very kind of aggressive, especially when it came to anybody. The moment I felt like a, a negative energy or an energy of being attacked, I would instantly go on the offensive um, and on the defensive at the same time. So um, it was I was constantly kind of like deflecting and then attacking. Now, despite the adversity you faced, though, you sound like you were clear about who you are. There was a lot of self-love and you're strong and you fight. You're a fighter. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there was just self-love because I just knew that there was going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Um And also, I just, from what I understood, there was no way that high school was going to, like, I just, like, I just knew I, I, in life, like, you're given, you're given a deck of cards. And sometimes there are some people and they draw, like, four aces in a row. And, like, that's their life. And then there are others where, you know, you draw, you keep drawing, like, bad cards. And I just felt like, okay, in high school, I was just dealt a shitty hand and this is kind of like what it's going to be for me and um I knew that there were other people out there who had it just as hard as me in different ways and it kind of kept me going and I just always felt like I always felt this sense of competition I was always like okay well you're bullying me now but one day I'll prove you wrong and that sense of Um, I wouldn't even really call it self-love because there were a lot of things, even though I did have self-love, um, I think that, that self-love came from a place of survival instinct. Um, but a big piece of that was also just kind of like this motivation to be better than the people that were bullying me. I was like, okay, so I'm getting bullied by some football player. Well, I'm going to become the I'm going to become the best snowboarder in the school. Or, you know, so I would try to compensate in other ways or like, oh, well this person, this this person who obviously is less than smart is bullying me. I'm going to become extra smart. So I'm like going to be the one getting the good grades. Um, but then, you know, I I came out to my mom in that in the summer and um I decided that uh, it was probably a good idea to change schools. So I went to an arts-focused boarding school um, that was a an hour drive from my house. And 
my family couldn't afford for me to board there as a boarding student. And I got, um, I was very lucky because I got financial aid to go there. So um, I was given this kind of like this blessing and this opportunity to just kind of like go to this new place and experience um, a new academic environment where everybody there was, everybody who came to that school came from a place where they were being bullied and um, felt left out for the most part. So I went to the school where there was a very large LGBTQ presence in the first place because it was, you know, a performing arts school. And so um, I felt a sense of community there. And then I started to get bullied for other things at that school. So I was like, if my gender ended up not, which was for me, felt like such a relief. I was like, okay, finally, kids aren't picking on me for being transgender or whatever. It's like now kids are picking on me for like my taste in music or the way I paint or just like things that I was like, oh, thank God. Like finally, I'm getting bullied for not the same stupid thing every day, um, which felt really great. But then I remember also like I have this experience of this is like a really positive, beautiful experience like in my transition because my mom made me visit the school. Even though I was I was going to go to the school and transition, my mom was like, made me go to the school dressed as a boy. Um, and I never understood that. Um, but I think she just wanted me to be able to get into the school. And she thought that maybe if I portrayed myself as transgender, they wouldn't let me in. And so she kind of was like, okay, like, let's try to get, her into the school first and then she can transition. Um, and so I showed up to the school and dressed as a boy. And so when the first day of school happened, um, and I came in dressed like a girl, all the kids were so confused. I remember feeling so hurt by that because I was like, this was my chance at a fresh start and I wasn't able to have one because of, um, yet another person in my past holding me back from being the person that I want to be and being portrayed as the person I want to be. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's interesting because it's like, on the one hand, my mother was the person who really kickstarted my, or gave me permission to be the person I wanted to be, um, and really helped to facilitate that. But on the other hand, you know, she held on to some of these conservative values and it, you know, made, it made life for me uncomfortable in another instance and not to put her down or anything, but that it is part of my experience and part of my story. And I'll never forget that I had this art teacher, a painting teacher named Ken Tai. He's just like this incredible painting teacher who taught me so much and treated me with so much compassion. And I had never been treated by so much, I had never been treated with so much compassion by a male figure ever in my life. And he said to me, I remember one day in class, he came up to me at the end of the class and he said, Teddy, um, I just wanted to ask you how, how, what would you, what pronouns would you like me to use? Would you like to be called she? Would you like to be called he? Um, and, uh, I, I said, well, I don't care. And he was like, no, I really, I want to know what you want to be called. And I said, I was like, I don't care. You can call me whatever you want. He said, no, I'm serious. And so I said, okay, well, I feel like I'm a girl. So I would appreciate it if you called me she. And from there on out, it was 
that just having that approval to be who I really was by an adult, by a grown person, um, was so special to me and was such a great experience because I was finally able to really, that was like the first moment where I was like, okay, from here on out, I am portraying myself as female for the rest of my life. This is how I've always felt inside. And now finally I'm going to be recognized for who I am. Um, and, you know, from there on out, that's that's who I was. I was Teddy Quinlevin, the girl. Not Teddy Quinlevin, the girl, you know, trying to be a boy. So that was like a really remarkable, positive experience because I, I have this like all this negative negativity in my past, but I think it's also really important to highlight the moments where there were people who were there for me and supported me and allowed me to be the person that I wanted to be and how important that that and how important that is for a young person going through this, going through this motion um, of figuring out who they really are, just giving them the space and the permission to be authentically themselves um, is just such a remarkable, special thing. And it really allowed me to flourish and it allowed me to focus on things that were important. And like, instead of what bathroom I was going in, it allowed me to focus on getting my school done, schoolwork done and um, participating and activities and making friends and like it, it eliminated a huge amount of fear and anxiety from my life just by having that approval um, from even just one person. And, you know, I'm curious. So it sounds like you're you're saying that what helped you is grownups, people who are on the front line, right? School teachers, doctors, parents to allow the exploration of what you're feeling, right? And not to invalidate it, but to just bring it to the surface and explore it. Like that's something when it comes to gender that traditionally, you know, in conservative um, societies or constructs, that's suppressed or it's pushed into, you know, a binary model, right? Where there's a dichotomy between male and female. And I'm just curious, did you ever disclose this before you actually decided to go on hormone therapy to a doctor, like pediatrician or any other kind of frontline figure um, outside of your mom? I hadn't disclosed it to any adults, um, but people who I had disclosed it to were like other kids. Um, I had disclosed it to like kids in my neighborhood because we would play, you know, when you're a kid and you're playing these games, like playing pretend was like my moment to be myself because like I could really be myself when I was playing these, you know, like if I was playing like a game of spies or whatever, even if I was hanging out with boys, I could be like, okay, and now I'm a girl. Like I could, and, and then it was, I had permission to be who I wanted to be because we were in the realm of make-believe. And then when the adults were around, I couldn't be who I wanted to be. But the funny thing is, is like the kids in my neighborhood never questioned the fact that I wanted to be a girl when I played those games. Because it wasn't like, that like wasn't weird somehow. Um, but then those kids would be like, oh yeah, like our parents would overhear uh, like us in the backyard and they'd be like, um, that's really weird that this this boy in our neighborhood is 
you know, pretending to be a girl. So then I got ostracized from other kids and parents wouldn't let me like hang out with their kids and stuff like that. So, I mean, really it was just like a full on assault socially of like, I couldn't have, I couldn't have friends. I hadn't, there were no adults there that were supporting me. I really was like a total and complete loner. Um, and you know, I definitely didn't have a supportive father figure, um, especially when it came to things like gender and stuff like that, especially not at that age. So, um, it, you know, it just was really challenging for me. But um, when I did come out as transgender and I did speak to my mom, one of the things that you had to do, I'm, I'm not sure if this is still the case, but at the time, um, if you wanted to get in, get on hormones or testosterone blockers at the time, you had to see a psychologist to make sure so they could evaluate you over the period of about six months to prove that you were in fact transgender over the course of weekly meetings. So I was having weekly meetings with um, a psychiatrist um, and she um, came to the conclusion that I did in fact have gender identity disorder and that's when I was able to get on hormones and that happened around the time I was 17 years old. And then later that year, I got discovered for modeling. Amazing. Okay. And, you know, just for the listeners, so Teddy um, has been on hormone therapy since this time and she has not undergone any, what we now call gender affirming surgeries, right? It's a new kind of way of saying sex reassignment surgeries. Um, and I want to talk about that a little bit in a second, but first, can you tell us, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of adversity, right? It's the gender incongruency, let's say, um, that you were experiencing, st struggling with from the outside feedback you were getting versus how you were feeling on the inside, plus the bullying. So in light of that, did you ever experience severe anxiety, what you understand to be depression, or any other significant mental health issues or psychological distress as a result of being transgender before your transition at 17? Absolutely. I think just the the stress and the anxiety of um, being in an abusive, um, just an abusive environment wherever I went. Um, you know, I, I had, I was raised by a father who, um, I love very much, but was less than kind most of the time. And, um, I would consider a lot of what he did to me as abusive, um, at a young age. And it wasn't, it wasn't sexual abuse, but it was just this constant ridicule by him of not being, the son that he wanted um, and him feeling humiliated by me being who I was. Even when I was hiding it, it still wasn't enough for him. Um, so just that feeling of there was no safe place for me to go. I just that feeling of, okay, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go to school and I am not going to be able to pay attention in class because I'm going to be bullied the entire time. And I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to sit next to anybody at lunch. I'm going to have no social life. I'm going to have no friends. And that was just so daunting for me. And so, um, 
really scary and upsetting. And um, it just, uh, I mean, if anything, I probably have like PTSD from the way I was treated um, as a young person. But um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I, I didn't know as an adult, now I understand what sensations of depression really are. Um, and I definitely experienced those. I used to, for an example of that was um, on days where I would be very severely bullied, I would say that I was sick. I would go into the nurse's office and say I was sick and I would just do anything to go home early, just like anything I could possibly do. And my mom would be get so upset at me for it because she was a working she was a working mom and my parents were going through a divorce at the time and she it was really difficult for her to take off work but I felt like I just needed to go I just couldn't be in that environment and um, my grades were slipping just it really being bullied as intensely as I was constantly just affected every aspect of my existence. I mean, um, just making making it just that much more difficult to do everyday things and to be a productive member of society and to be a productive student and to be a happy child or whatever. It just was extremely hard um, you know, and then on top of that too, having all of the other normal stuff that you have to deal with. So the gender whole issue, the whole transgender issue was, um, extremely challenging. But then on top of that, having parents that were going through a divorce and, um, having a working mom who like, you know, not only was kind of hesitant of accepting this side of my identity, but also like, was working all of the time. Um, just like um, not like the, those lack of human connections definitely um, made things extremely difficult for me. And I, even in my adult life, like I'm so untrust. It's like, I. it's funny. It's like you, it's other animals portray the same thing as well. It's like you, if you adopt a dog that came from an abusive situation, they're much more skittish. They're much less likely to socialize with other animals. They're much less likely to trust. And it's just so funny that I can draw those parallels from like an abused animal to myself. Um, just like this, these feelings of like, I, this, I can't trust anybody. What are the motivations for this? Like nobody, like why would anybody actually want to date me or why would anybody actually want to be my friends? Like why, like what's going on here? Like just, ex, just extreme, this just a feeling of extremely, extreme untrust. And also um, the questioning of real connections and questioning of real friendships and not knowing what's real and what's not. And, um, yeah, it definitely takes a huge mental toll. And I'm luckily I've gotten to a place now where I'm like much better. Tell us a little bit about your view and your thoughts for yourself on such a thing as a gender affirming surgery. I know you said you're on the fence about it. I think it's, when it comes to surgery, it's all about personal preference. Um, 
And I would never want to get in the way of anybody making a personal decision for themselves that they feel like they need to love themselves or to exist in the world, whether that's getting FFS, which is facial feminization surgery, which is a very common procedure um, um, for trans people or um, sexual reassignment surgery. Um, For me personally... I have, uh, I've been through the throes of it, Um, just working as a model and seeing your face retouched and seeing your body retouched and being backstage with the most beautiful women on earth and seeing their bodies and then seeing yours and comparing yourself and thinking, if only my hips were a little bit wider, maybe I would be more passable. If only my cheekbones were a little bit higher, I'd be more passable. If only my lips were bigger, if only my nose were smaller, if only my hairline was smaller, if I got a jaw shape, if I got, a, you know, there's, there's so many procedures now that you can do to make yourself look more attractive. Um, Every time I've considered getting um, a, like a, a more se- a, like a serious procedure, like going under the knife kind of a procedure, I've always kind of thought to myself, okay, like, is this going to make me feel more beautiful or is this just going to make me, ap- in my mind, appear more beautiful to the, to the world? And then I also had a question from, this is just, I'm speaking personally for myself and my experience. Um, I also questioned, you know, do I want to look artificial or do I want to look like a cisgender woman or feel like a cisgender woman? And what does that mean? Like, will this, like, will getting a smaller nose, like, make me feel more, more like a woman will get it will you know will getting a vagina make me feel more like a woman and I've come to kind of a place where I feel very comfortable in who I am and what I have um and also knowing that the the things about me that might be a little bit more masculine are also the things that make me unique and make me beautiful um at this point in my life I I've had a a very fulfilled career and a very fulfilled like sex life and uh without um without having sexual reassignment surgery um or having like you know uh, like a procedure is done to my face that being said I did get a breast augmentation so and it, it for me that was a very affirming surgery like I did I didn't know that it was going to make me feel so good afterwards I kind of and I really kind of got it for the aesthetic purposes it wasn't it wasn't because I felt like getting a breast augmentation was going to make me feel more of a more like a woman but then after I got it in some ways I kind of felt like oh my god now I have like I felt like part of the club now I felt like oh my god now I have breasts. I have like beautiful breasts too. So now I'm a part of like the club of women who have like breasts, you know, cause like hormones make your breasts grow, but I was just a really, really skinny girl. So they weren't going to grow that much. So it was like, okay. Um, and then it became like this very kind of like, it was it was an interesting experiment because it was something that I kind of was like, I didn't need it for my job. In fact, like my agency at the time, 
preferred I didn't have that surgery. They were like, um, you're never going to walk a fashion show again if you get this surgery. Um, like went on to walk like Louis Vuitton a couple more times, but that's fine anyways. So on a side note, I think the question is, is this for you or is this for them? You know? And like my breast augmentation, I went into it thinking it was going to be for them, but like it ended up really being for me, which was kind of funny how that worked. Like now I'm like, it's like, it was, I, I always say like my breast augmentation was like the best money I ever spent. Based on your experiences and the fact that your mother played an instrumental role, despite her being maybe from a more traditional background, what's your advice for young parents whose children may be expressing frustration or distress about the gender they're assigned? I think, um, what I would, the advice I would give is let your kids just be themselves especially when it comes to expressing their gender. Like, what is, like, what's the harm in it? Like, what's the harm in, like, a five-year-old, like, who wants to dress up like a girl or a five-year-old girl who wants to dress up like a boy? What's the harm in a five-year-old doing that? Like, there's nothing, like, who is who, who is it really hurting? Is it hurting your own, like, ego that your kid isn't conforming to society or is it hurting the kid that they're doing that? And I think that there's been an argument that it's unreasonable parenting for parents to allow their children to experiment with gender. It's like, if you're going to allow your children to experiment with um, action sports like football, where there has been clear research research done that getting your head hit over and over again causes CTE. Um, and for people who don't know what CTE is, it's like a buildup of pla- um, proteins in the brain that ultimately make you make your brain decay. Essentially, it's like early. It's like a form of early onset Alzheimer's, but it's caused by constant head trauma. So you're gonna let your kid go, basically self-injure themselves and that's okay but you're not going to let your kid express themselves like creatively and why aren't you going to let your kid do that like you know what I mean like is it it, it, it's really I think it comes down to the parents be feeling like their children are a reflection of themselves and I think it's important for parents to realize that their children aren't them their children are themselves. They have their own identities and they have um, their own individuality and you should give them space to explore that, of course, reasonably. I never felt weird about going and seeing a psychiatrist and making sure that I, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with seeking help from um, psychological medical professionals. Um to get a professional opinion um, about, you know, what's going on. I don't think there's anything wrong with going to therapy, obviously. Um, not like conversion therapy, but, uh, <laughs> right. you know, getting getting opinions from medical professionals. Um, but uh, on the other hand, there is also something to be said about the fact that being able to transition at a young age allows your child like if you if if you can get your if your child is transgender and it's confirmed and you've 
you know, sought help from a medical professional and this is, it's looking like it's a very real thing and your child is being extremely adamant that this is who they are and they're willing to take the next step to get on hormones, I would say like, um, I would say that it's in some cases appropriate for younger people to start hormone therapy. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure that there would be there are transgender people and parents of transgender kids who would argue with me about when. And I think there's a huge debate going on right now about um, when it's appropriate for transgender kids to go on hormone therapy. But I've seen I've seen the way I've seen kids who have transitioned at a very young age, not a very young age. I mean, when I say very young, I mean, like 13, 14, 15 um, and I've seen people who have transitioned in their thirties and forties and the quality of life that a person who is able to transition at a younger age has, is, in my opinion, seems to be substantially better, um, than the quality of life of somebody who transitions later in life. And the reason I say that is because you get to avoid all these extremely expensive, time-consuming procedures. You get to um, you get to um, grow up looking and feeling like the gender that you are inside. Um, and I think that's an extremely powerful thing. And I, you know, if I could have gone on hormones earlier, um, if I had the support system to do that, perhaps I would have. So Teddy, thank you so much. I have so many more questions for you, but perhaps another time. It's really wonderful to hear your story. Thanks for sharing. Um, all right. Time for the question that I ask everybody. If you had like 5 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? If I had 5 million Instagram follower followers, what I would want to tell them about mental health is just that, Everybody experiences a level of mental instability and mental unhealth at different points in their life. It doesn't have to necessarily be chronic or diagnosed. You can just have a moment where you slip. It can just be a moment um, where you slip into chaos and do something life-altering or life-changing um, that can affect not just your life, perhaps, but maybe the lives of others. And I think we're seeing that now with a lot of these mass shootings of these, um, a lot of kids who are in these really dark places and, or, and people might not necessarily know that they have these feelings. And maybe one day they don't have these feelings of, I want to harm myself or I want to harm other people. But then it's just, all it takes is a moment or all it takes is a day. All it takes is a split second for that person to change their mind and make a decision where they want to hurt themselves or hurt others. And so I think just knowing that there, what we all have in common is humans are just fragile. Like we are all, we all go through things. We all are tried in different ways. We all have it. We all have it difficult um, in one respect or another. And we, and you're just not alone you're just like, I think it's just important to, I'm pretty sure probably everybody says the same thing, but you know, it's You'd actually I be surprised. Really, <laughs> there have been a very like big variation on this answer. Yeah. I think, um, I think the most important thing for people to know about mental health is regardless of what you're feeling, um, you're not, you're absolutely not alone in the way that you feel. And there 
is there are resources out there. There is a support system out there. There are people that love you and respect you and want you to live the most happy, productive, positive life. And um, if you're feeling those feelings, it's so important to um, explore them in a positive way um, and to figure out what's causing those feelings and how to address them appropriately. Amazing. Thank you so much, Teddy, for coming on. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Stay safe and stay well. You are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Please note that the contents of Model Mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Model Mentality. You have just been listening to our interview with Teddy Quinlevin. Let's review Teddy's story. Teddy Quinlevin is an international fashion model who began modeling at the age of 17 and came out as transgender publicly in 2017. Teddy knew from a young age that she was a girl, despite being assigned male sex at birth due to conventions of anatomy and genetics. Throughout her school years, she was subjected to an extensive history of bullying because of the way she looked. She stayed strong because inside she was clear about who she was, despite the discrimination of those around her. A turning point was in high school when one of her teachers asked her what pronoun she would like to be addressed by. This was the first time that an adult outside of her immediate family had the sensitivity to ask, not assume, and allow Teddy the, the space to decide on her own how she should be addressed. This is the power of gender affirmation. Teddy came out to her mother at age 16 as transgender, and as you heard in the interview, her mother was not surprised and knew that time was of the essence. After visits with her doctor and a psychologist to support her during the transition, Teddy was put on hormone replacement therapy, female hormones called estradiol and medroxyprogesterone, and started to live the life that she had always dreamt of. Teddy was fortunate in that she had not developed secondary sex characteristics until age 17, and she liked the way that she looked. She was able to conceal the transgender aspect of her identity after her transition and was able to succeed in her modeling career, something that she refers to in the podcast as living in stealth. It was not until more recently, where due to intersection of politics and the personal, Teddy revealed her secret and came out to the world as transgender. We are honored to have Teddy on our podcast and for Teddy to have shared her story with us. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three things. One, understanding gender identity and what transgender is. Two, transgender discrimination. And three, mental health outcomes. First, what is gender identity and what does transgender refer to? A good definition that I recently found from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry is that gender identity is, quote, one's internal sense of who one is, which results from a multifaceted interaction of biological traits, developmental influences, and environmental conditions. It may be male, female, somewhere in between, a combination of both or neither. So let's back up and go over a few basic concepts. 
Concept number one, binary versus non-binary. So in the binary world of gender, there is he and she as pronouns, two forms of gender, male and female. Non-binary refers to gender identity that does not fall into two categories, and the pronouns that are used are they or their instead of he or she. Concept number two, sexual orientation versus gender identity. Sexual orientation is not the same as gender identity. As Teddy said in the interview, quote, sexuality is who you go to bed with and gender is who you go to bed as. And for me, that sums it up well. Sexuality or sexual orientation is who you are consistently attracted to sexually, romantically, and emotionally. Gender identity, going back to the original definition, is one's internal sense of who one is. So what exactly is being transgender? You may have heard of both terms, cisgender and transgender. Cis means same. So cisgender is a person whose gender identity, i.e. the way they feel about their gender, is the same as the sex they were assigned at birth. To illustrate this, I am cisgender. Simply put, I was assigned female at birth and I've always felt female. Therefore, my gender identity, the way I feel about my gender, is the same or cis as the gender I was assigned at birth. Transgender is a person whose gender assignment at birth differs from the gender they identify with. And as we heard in the podcast, Teddy is transgender. She's always known this. She was assigned male at birth, but she has always felt her identity is female. And for the record, transgender is the T in LGBTQ. So what about transgender discrimination and mental health outcomes among transgender people? Historically, it's well known that the transgender population has been marginalized and subject to stigma and discrimination. Teddy has a personal and prolonged experience of bullying for the way she looked when the outside world viewed her as male. Because her transition was around the same time as the start of her modeling career, she might have been spared a bit due to her passing privilege, as she describes, but she still fights the fight on a daily basis for her community. As clinicians in mental health, we see people of all walks of life, and what we know is that when societal or family norms are not gender-inclusive or accepting of gender identity outside of the traditional concepts of male and female, this becomes more difficult for those who don't and can't conform. Can you imagine if you were trapped in a male body but always intrinsically knew you were female? Maybe this is hard for some of you to understand, But if this were the case, and everyone around you would not listen to you, acknowledge your view, nor validate your true and authentic feelings about yourself, and then to top it off, you're made fun of all of your life, discriminated against, and you don't end up with the same opportunities as someone else for something that is just due to who you are and who you feel like you are. Now imagine you start to tell others, despite the odds around you, that you are transgender because the distress of not being able to express who you are starts to eat away inside of you. But as you tell people, they don't accept it. And in fact, they start to shun you and move away from you and perhaps threaten you and don't allow you to work or integrate into the society around you. And you feel alone and isolated and not accepted because of just being you. Unfortunately, this story is all too common. According to the 2015 U.S. Trans Survey, which is a report put out by the National Center for Transgender Equality, transgender people, compared to the general population, are twice as likely to live in poverty and three times as likely to experience unemployment. 
So what are the known mental health outcomes of all of this? Unfortunately, studies show that transgender people of all ages, including youth and adolescents, have high rates of depression, anxiety, eating disorders, self-harm, and suicide. In fact, one specific study, which looked at suicidality among youth who had identified as transgender, describes that 56% has at one time experienced suicidal ideation and 31% had made a suicide attempt, a rate that is much higher than in the general population. With respect to my profession, in our classification system, which is found in a manual called the DSM, Only quite recently in 2013 did the concept of gender identity disorder cease to exist and now in the current classification of disorders has changed to a description of distress called gender dysphoria. This refers to the discordance between the sex assigned at birth and gender identity. There's one thing I want to be very clear about. Being transgender is not a mental illness. The increased risk for mental health issues has to do with the complexity of the internal conflict between the assigned sex and gender, stigma, social exclusion, and in general, a historically poor safety net for this community. Although Teddy has clearly experienced an inner psychological struggle through her journey, she stands strong in who she is, as evidenced by her being affirmed by her teacher, her mother, and then transitioning and living out her dream to become a woman. Although Teddy has not had what is formerly known as sex reassignment surgery, she has undergone one gender-affirming surgery, breast augmentation, which did indeed have a powerful, unanticipated effect on affirming her identity as a woman. We are honored to hear Teddy's story and to tell it to you in this way. The hope is that you have learned that gender identity outside of the binary male and female construct is a part of our human experience. When social and family norms do not support the diversity of gender that exists, people struggle psychologically, and we want you to understand that we are with you, that you are not alone, and that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on model mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.